March has arrived, and we are only weeks away from the big tournament. Yes, that tournament. Make sure to head to Bet Online and open an account today to get in on their $100,000 Bracket Madness contest starting March 15th. And remember, the NBA and XFL are still going strong, so whatever your passion is, Bet Online is the place to be for all your betting needs. Visit our good friends and exclusive partner, Bet Online, to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account and make sure to use that promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for your 50% sign up bonus. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Thank you so much to Bet Online for presenting this podcast today. And in this podcast today, I'm very, very excited because I'm going to tell Drew about one of soccer's forgotten tragedies. Oh, no. And it's a little bit time specific, so I think it's an important story for you all. Buckle up. This is Deadball Brothers. Welcome to Deadball Brothers, a weekly podcast about soccer and history with a healthy, healthy, healthy dose of stupidity presented this week by Bet Online and Untuck It Shirts. Rap sirens, rap sirens, so many rap, rap sirens. We are on round two of soccer history stories. Yeah, we're finally today. getting we're finally getting around to double game week. Yeah, so here we, are. Uh, we would say something about soccer stuff, but we've already said all the things about soccer stuff that we had to say in the last podcast episode. So you're going to be hearing this possibly midweek, but just know that we're doing it on the same day. Doing it for you. So well. We're doing it and doing it and doing it well. Never going to stop. As the song goes. I'm everybody's least favorite athletic writer, Adam Whitaker Snavely, joined as always by my real life brother, Drew Snavely, noted Manchester United fan. Noted. Cautiously optimistic. Cautious, cautiumistic, as we like to say here. Uh, I was also saying that myself, noted Borussia Dortmund fan, also cautiously optimistic. Man. Currently, we're both cautiously optimistic about our teams. Because both teams have been on cautiously optimistic-like runs. Absolutely. Uh, we'll see how that goes this week. We have, uh, I have, we have to play PSG uh, in Paris. I guess. Oh, yeah. We're not in Champions League, oh, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, pretty sad. <laughs> but we are in Europa League, um, which everybody knows is the um, uh, world soccer's, European soccer's best kept secret. <laughs> very, very prestigious uh, tournament. Yes, prestigious, the one that uh, is just just waiting for you to discover it. It's like the hipster. It's like the hipster of the two. Mm, Champions League. No, thank you. Give me the Europa League. Please. Yes, yes. Your finest Europa League vintage. <laughs> <laughs> we are playing I, I forget who we drew because we advanced past uh club rouge um yeah i really i don't remember oh i think it's olympiacos actually oh so that should they actually because they beat arsenal they beat arsenal yeah <laughs> <laughs> another this is round two of us and also round two of us making fun of arsenal yes yes <laughs> suck it gooners uh drew yes i have a story for you you have a story for me it's a tragedy. It's so a little bit of a downer. I'm not cautiously optimistic yeah, about your story. That's I'm true. Cautiously sad. Yes, that's fair. 
Um, it happened a long time ago, and I actually got the idea from this story from a friend of mine, Cody Carwile. Oh, awesome. Who is not a soccer fan at all. Shouts to you, Cody. He just saw this news story, and he's like, hey, have you guys cover that? And I was like, no. And I looked into it, and I was like, this is wild. Dang. I should talk about it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like um, almost if you Googled, like, this day in history, soccer. Something like that. Yeah. So it's actually, right now, it's Sunday, March 8th. This day in history, it will occur tomorrow, March 9th, in 1946. 1946. England. Ah, the motherland. The last six years that had brought the trauma, hardships, and infrastructural damage from World War II wasn't quite enough to stop soccer completely in the country during the time, but it almost did. Countrywide competitions were suspended, and many London teams were forced to suspend operations temporarily for obvious reasons. London got the crap bound out of them. Yeah, really sad. Yeah, Yeah. so obviously that that wasn't going to work. Also, it's not going to work if I keep kicking the chair. Hey, it's totally fine. I'll stop doing that. (laughs) Chief among these competitions that were suspended were the Football League and the FA Cup. When World War II ended, the FA Cup was the first competition to resume play in 1945 and 1946. And it did so a year before the return of Football League matches. So, not only was it the first major soccer competition to resume play in England, but for one year, it was the only major soccer competition in England. It was almost like a long, extended preseason, which is about how seriously the FA Cup gets treated by most top-flight teams nowadays. <laughs> Zing. Zing. Got him. <laughs> that one's right down comedy lane. <laughs> uh, Unless gosh. you're Arsenal. Somebody asked me a couple days ago if I would be satisfied if United won the FA Cup but didn't make the Champions League. I was like... And you said no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Louis Van Hall, uh, he won the FA Cup, but missed out on Champions League, and he got fired. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... Just because Ole's at the wheel doesn't mean that we change in our standards. Yeah, no. So, one of the favorites to hoist the cup were Bolton Wanderers at the time. Now, for the past decade or so, the club has been best known for its fall from the Premier League and subsequent financial struggles, and how it's come to the brink of dissolution on several occasions. Yes. Most recently... Receiving a five-point penalty and an 18-month probationary period for failing to play two of its scheduled games over the past year. One against Brentford and one against Doncaster. They're uh, a mess. Doncaster Rovers are on fire. Shots out. You should check out that podcast <laughs> Doncaster if you Doncaster Rovers are on fire. <laughs> one of our early ones, but one of my favorite stories yes. that I have told to this day. <laughs> but in the first half of the 20th century, Bolton were a pretty strong side and a part of a proud Lancashire tradition of soccer excellence. They won the FA Cup in 1923, 1926, 1929, and 1958, while also finishing as runners-up in 1904, 1952, and bowing out in the semifinals in 1915 and 1935. They have a pretty... In that first half of the century, they have a lot of high FA Cup finishes. Yeah. Um, In 1946, their first year back in the competition since its return after World War II... The, cu- the club had put together a pretty strong run. They crushed Blackburn Rovers and Liverpool in two-legged ties that finished 4-1 and 5-2, respectively. Wow. In the third and fourth rounds. They enter in the third round. Yeah. After squeaking past Middlesbrough 2-1, Bolton found themselves in the quarterfinal against Stoke City. 
Stoke City were another good team at the time, although not a great team, but they did have a not very secret weapon. Stanley Matthews. Stanley. You know who Stanley Matthews is? Exactly. (laughs) Matthews is considered by many to be one of the greatest English soccer players of all time. Okay. That's great. He is the only soccer player to be knighted while still being an active player. Oh, that's awesome. He was the first ever winner of the Ballon d'Or. Okay. He is the oldest player to ever play in England's first division at 50 years old in five days. What? He's the oldest player to ever lace up for England in a competitive match at 42 years and 104 days. And he garnered the nicknames the Wizard of the Dribble and the Magician for his ability on the ball out on the right flank. So you're basically what you're telling me is that I should have known who Stanley Matthews was. Maybe we should uh, do a little episode on Stanley Matthews because I feel like actually your response is very common. I don't think many people like know Stanley Matthews yeah. as well as they know like I'm sure people in England the Robsons. Oh, yeah, people in England know it, but I yeah. think I think we we are based in America, and I think that a lot of our audience is American. Yeah. Um, our Twitter header is literally a cross stitch that said it's called soccer. Yeah, um, but I think that a lot of I think he is a little bit of an afterthought in many ways for several okay. people that are not from the country. Um, but yeah, Stanley Matthews, one of the best to ever do it for England, just so you know. Okay. And it's Sir Stanley Matthews. Sir, yes, yeah, Sir Stanley Matthews. He was a superstar for club and country, and people would travel from miles around to watch him play. That didn't matter much to Bolton, however, who walked into the first leg of their quarterfinal tie and beat Stoke 2-0 away to Stoke. With the semis firmly in their sights, Bolton eyed the return leg at home in Burnden Park. Now, Burnden Park was Bolton's home for over a century. Yeah. From 1895 all the way to 1997. So it was already a very old and established ground in 1946. It was kind of an interesting mix of terraces and seatings and this whole embankment section. Yeah. Where the terrace, the embankment end, which as it was called, it was set up terrace style. Um, with like, with some like guards and rails and stuff. And then like a, like the classic terrace, like standing section, but it was all grass. Yeah. So it was kind of like this weird combination of big stadium, but with an old school, like country feel to it. That's cool. Um, Burnham Park was a large, proud ground and the people of Lancashire being as into soccer as they were was a stadium that could house a considerable amount of people. You will recall we have talked about exactly one other Lancashire club on this podcast before, and it was the very first episode. Yes. Yes. Dick. The Dick Kerr Ladies Kerr FC. Ladies FC. Uh-huh. Lily Parr and crew. Lily Parr. <laughs> Lily Parr is a star. <laughs> now, in 1946, however, Burnden Park was not exactly the same park it had been just a few years before. In 1940 before the start of the war. A few vital pieces of the stadium were missing actually due to the war effort. Britain's Ministry of Supply had requisitioned a portion of one of the main stands, known as the Burnden Stand, yeah, causing the stadium to lose a significant portion of space for spectators. Wait, so what did they do with it? I don't actually know. Nobody huh. says what they 
took it for, but they took part of the stand. Oh, that's kind of creepy. Which is wild. It's like some conspiracy or something. I like, don't think it was a conspiracy. I think it was just they were fighting a war and needed stuff. Yeah, that's probably true. It might have just been materials, for all I know. Or it could be something like uh, training places, people you needed seating for soldiers at different places that they just kind of transported a stand or something like that. Yeah. That could be part of it, yeah. but I don't actually know the reason why part of the stand was requisitioned by the government. I just know that it was, and it hadn't been returned yet. Yeah, which is okay. kind of a funny sentence. Okay, yeah, they took our stands and they haven't given them back. Yeah, yet. it's weird. Um, also, the turnstiles at the embankment end hadn't been opened or in use since 1940, meaning the stadium was operating at considerably less capacity than usual. And there were many more crowd bottlenecks created than usual. Still, the largest crowd of the cup thus far had been just over 40,000. So they've been playing games. They've played games at Brennan Park. And actually, I read somewhere, I'm pretty sure that this was, I think, the first year or one of the first years that the FA Cup had moved to all two-legged ties. Okay. So every, every instead of... All these rounds where you enter in the third round and it's just drawn randomly where you play. And if it's a draw, then you'd get the replay uh-huh. at your stadium. Um, that is in place now until... No, it's just in place now for the whole competition. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's how the FA Cup works right now, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. There's no two-legged ties? Yeah. It, well, I think that... There, are the semis two-legged? I think... I think that there's a second tie if the match, the first match ends in a yeah, draw. Yeah, that's it. You, the, yeah, the replay. Yeah, if, if there's you, a replay. If you get a draw, you earn a replay at the other team's stadium. But that ends uh, when you get to the round of 16, I believe. Okay. Uh, it just goes to extra time and then penalties. Got it. I don't, or maybe it's like the fifth round or sixth round. You are the like biggest that. English soccer, bigger English soccer fan. That so I'm just relying. All on I know is that up. what just happened this last week. Um, so there was one FA Cup match that went to, it either went to penalties or went to extra time. Um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was just extra time. Gotcha. So yeah. So, but they've had a few home games at this point. Already yeah, yeah. Because. Yeah. Every game they've played since they've entered in the fourth round. So they've played at least three games. Bolton has. Yeah. Um, and Burnham Park has... I don't know if Burnham Park was only home to Bolton or if there were other teams that were playing there. But they've played at least three home games thus far. And uh, the largest crowd they had had was about 40,000 people. The largest crowd that Burnham Park had ever had before that point was 69,000 people around abouts. Nice. Nice. Um <laughs> so stupid (laughs) we're just (laughs) champions of idiocy so the stadium hadn't had difficulty handling the amount of people and the crowds that have come to see games up to this point that was all about to change however as over 80,000 people would descend upon Burnden Park Thank you for listening to Deadball Brothers, brought to you by Untuck It. Ever wonder why traditional button-ups look so long and baggy? That's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untuck It shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. 
With more than 50 fit combinations, Untucket shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. Don't just take my word for it. Try Untucket for yourself. Visit untuckit.com and use promo code BLUEWIRE for 20% off your first order. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com and promo code BLUEWIRE for 20% off your first order. back from our sponsor break adam there are a crap ton of fans packed into the bolton wonder stadium yes drew on that day which was march 9th 1946 there were no other games happening elsewhere in the entirety of lancashire on that day bolton were taking a commanding 2-0 back home, 2-0 lead back home with the fa cup semifinals within their reach and on that day the biggest star in english soccer Stanley Matthews was coming to town to play a match. It was estimated at the time, actually 1947 was the figure that I found. Okay. Um, it was estimated at the time that there were a little over 50,000 television sets in the United Kingdom. So live sports broadcasts weren't some like foreign concept. And it's not like nobody could watch soccer on TV or go catch a match in their local pub. But it also wasn't incredibly common. And I didn't see anything to necessarily indicate that this match was being broadcast yeah so part of the draw of going to a game was actually being able to see matthews play with your own eyes as opposed to just hearing about his exploits yeah this on the dude radio. was knighted yeah i mean well at the time he was not knighted. oh he wasn't it was later yet. but he was going to be he knighted. was a he was that good he, that was, he a, was about to be he knighted. was a big friggin deal yeah um and I feel like we don't talk, think about that when we talk about like how like a ton of these massive crowds back in the day. We don't we don't think about the fact that like you didn't see all these players and what they could do whenever you wanted to, yeah. like we do now. <laughs> oh man, technology is is really awesome and terrifying a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, but really awesome and terrifying a lot of the time is a great way to describe it. <laughs> but you had to go to matches to to see a soccer match. I mean, yeah. These things, combined with Burden Park's missing infrastructure, created a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Now, the absolute capacity of the stadium, according to some estimates, should have been close to sixty to 65,000, somewhere in that range. Okay. The most, conservative, the most conservative estimates of the crowd size on March 9th put the crowd at 65,000 at least. Oh, wow. Most records of the event, including figures run by the BBC, placed the crowd size at Burnden Park that day closer to 85,000 people. Jeez. Fans started to be turned away at the gate about 20 minutes before kickoff. But that did little to deter the crowd. I was, I was just like say, a crowd. <laughs> like, at what point are they like, all right, cut it off? And like, no more. How did they let 85,000 people in? And then they'd be like, "All right, this is too much." Fans went around the closed, went around to the closed turnstiles at the embankment end of the park, the ones that were not in use, as I said pre- previously, and hopped them to get in. Oh gosh! So they were going to the not in use exit and yeah. were just hopping that. There was also a bunch of 
smaller walls and ramshackle fencing because this is an open air stadium. It's not like roofed or anything. Yeah. Um, people were kind of taking apart parts of the fencing. They were hopping walls and fences and oh getting in gosh. that way. Um, people were getting into this game. Like yeah. people, people were not taking no for an answer. Yeah. It began to get so crowded that fans that had entered the game earlier were pushed along the sideline to the far end of the stadium out of the stadium and into the car park where they couldn't watch the game. What? That's kind of like how this mass of people started like pushing each other. Yeah. Obviously, these fans began to push back. Yeah. Oh my god. Trying to get back into the stadium to yeah. watch the game. Uh a father and son realized what was happening at one end. And this is kind of a they know that a door open and and one of the stories about how this opened isn't necessarily corroborated by anybody uh-huh. but legend has it that a father and son realized what was happening and wanted to get out and so the father went up to a closed gate that wasn't in use and was closed and picked the lock oh wow and opened it and he and his son got out but when he opened it, there were still thousands of people outside trying to get in, and it was another point of entry, so thousands more people came in that way. Jeez. Just casually picked a lock? Yes. <laughs> so, as the game was set to begin, a terrace at one end of the pitch swelled, causing a couple dozen people to fall over the rail and onto the pitch, which delayed the start of the game. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I don't think anybody was significantly injured here. Uh-huh. Also, at this point, the crowd had begun to lift up women and children above their heads and pass them over onto the pitch so that they could avoid the crush of the crowd. So there's just a bunch of women and children that are on the sideline. Like crowd surfing. That, are, that have been crowd surfed to avoid getting crushed. Yeah. Now, you might think to yourself, these are signs that this game should not be played. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should call all this off. Yeah. But the ref did not feel the same way, as the game promptly kicked off after these delays. It's the FA Cup, man. Apparently, terrace swells like these and also crowd-surfing women and children away from crowd crushes were common enough occurrences at the time that it did not warrant abandonment of the game. Okay. I, I guess. Mm-hmm. It seems... It makes me wonder <laughs> what all has been occurring all the time. The fact that they created a system... To where the women and children were being mm-hmm. crowd surfed onto the pitch definitely makes you feel like, okay, we've done this before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we know what to do, guys. It's bad that the fans had a protocol for this. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good thing. No. It is a bad all. thing. Yes. And and thinking about it, like they said that the capacity for the stadium was probably 65,000 ish, something like that. The record up to this point was already 69,000. So they've already filled it past capacity before. Like, it just hasn't happened to this extent. Yeah. Now, the game kicked off. Oh, wait, no. I'm in the wrong place. Hey, Sorry. it's totally fine. Yep. So they were common enough occurrences at the time that it didn't warrant the abandonment of the game. Also of concern to the referee and police in the area was the possibility that with no good way of effectively communicating with such a huge crowd... It could take an already dangerous situation and create a riot with angry fans wanting to see a game. So the game kicked off. Okay. Basically, they're like, we don't have a good way of communi- communicating with everybody. 
and figuring and like it's impossible for all the fans to know what was happening. Yeah. When all was said and done, the majority of the fans in the stands didn't even know what had occurred. Oh gosh. And the players didn't know the extent of what happened. Nobody knew until like everybody was getting home, basically. Oh wow. Yeah. Soon enough, partway through the first half, two large metal crush barriers collapsed under the weight of far too much strain, and the crowd collapsed on itself. As spectator Bill Cheeseman told 442, all of a sudden, those that were in front of us seemed to go all falling down like a pack of cards. A photo exists of one Phyllis Robb, who was one of the women, one of the women transported over the heads of the crowd during the crush. Robb who was 101 years old when the BBC interviewed her about the event in 2017. What a woman. Said, I can remember the barriers breaking down and they were all rushing out and they put me over their shoulders like that. Wow. The referee stopped play and sent the teams into the dressing room while police tried to sort the crowd out as best they could. As they did, they realized that there had been casualties. Yeah. And began stretching out those that were injured. Those that they found that were dead, they covered with coats and began laying them out behind the goal at one end of the field. And this is kind of where I feel like this kind of, this story gets set apart from other similar stories. Uh Because, like, you know about Hillsborough. A lot of people know about, like, the Ibrox disaster that happened, like, a decade or so before Hillsborough. Yeah. And, like, kind of like the crowd crush disasters. But I've never heard a story like this. Yeah. It was decided by the referee and police that it was in the best interest of the safety of the crowd that the game resumed play. What? Yeah. So they just had like a bunch of dead people behind goal and they're just like, let's keep on playing? That's messed up. The teams were brought back out after basically a 30-minute stoppage where the police were trying to clear the crowd and stuff. Lightning didn't strike. People died. That, oh, gosh. They played the remainder of the first half. And when halftime was called, instead of taking a 15-minute break, the referee had the team simply swap sides and continue playing. Police were still working to clear bodies of injured and dead from the place in the crowd where the barriers had collapsed. And one touchline had been completely erased by the collapse of people, and it was reborn as a line of sawdust that separated the players from the spectators and the police. On one side, dead bodies were being laid out, covered in the coats those people had worn to the game. On the other side, a soccer game was being played. Jeez. The game ended nil-nil, with no other major crowd incidents occurring. The players didn't know the extent of the disaster or casualties until after the game on their drives home, unable to confirm during the game whether people passing by them were unconscious or actually dead. Now, Stanley Matthews, in his memoir, The Way It Was, wrote... It was not until I was motoring home that evening that the shadow of grim disaster descended on me like a storm cloud. Bolton won the tie and advanced to the FA Cup semifinals, where they would lose to Aston Villa. So, it sounds super messed up, and it is messed up, that the game continued playing. But also, it kind of sounds like it worked. Why? Because... Nobody else, like, that was the only major incidents that occurred. And the remainder of the game, no one else got hurt. And the fear was... If you call it off, then, If you like, call it off, crowd. there's no... And they just didn't have any way to get to the crowd and tell them all. I, I don't know if there was, like, 
they thought that whatever, if they didn't have a speaker system or whatever speaker system they did have wasn't effective, but they were basically, they were afraid that it was going to just create more confusion and a riot where the end of a game would just mean, all right, people know the game is over and people are just going to leave. Yeah. Like that that sort of thing, as opposed to like pushing each other and creating another barrier collapse. That was the fear. Yeah, it's just kind of hard to grasp uh, a soccer game being played while police are literally laying dead bodies along the sideline. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. In the wake of the disaster, Welsh politician Moylwyn Hughes, which is a heck of a name. Yeah. It's what I looked up how to pronounce today. All right. Moylwyn. Moylwyn. M-O-E-L-W-Y-N. Wow. Wales. (laughs) The Welsh man. Moylwyn Hughes was tasked with investigating the event. His report on the game became something of a standardized text on regulating crowds above 25,000 people in Britain, including calling for more strict turnstile regulations, counting people entering a ground, and the use of internal telephones so that communication between police and support staff could actually occur in the event of a disaster. Obviously, that sort of thing wasn't around for Burnden Park. This report was used all the way up until 1989 when the Hillsborough disaster occurred. The greatest loss of life ever recorded at a British sporting event. All in all, more than 500 people were injured in the Burnden Park disaster and 33 people lost their lives. The 33 people were Wilfred Addison, Wilfred Allison, Fred Battersby, James Battersby, Robert Bentham, Henry Bimson, Henry Ratcliffe, Burt Whistle, John T. Blackshaw, W. Braidwood, Fred Campbell, Fred Price Dearden, William Evans, Winston Finch, John Flinders, Albert Edward Hanoran, Emily Hoskinson, William Hughes, Frank Jubb, uh, John Livesey, John Thomas Lucas, Harold McAndrew, Morgan Mooney, Harry Needham, David Pearson, Joseph Platt, Sidney Potter, Grenville Roberts, Richard Roby, Thomas Roby, T. Smith, Walter Wilmot, James Wilson, and William McKenzie. The oldest to die was 67 years old. The youngest to die was 14 years old. Mm. Now, I saved Bill McKenzie for last on that list um, because after his death, his wife was actually the one who took up to fight to took up the fight to ensure these names would never be forgotten. She continued to fight for Bolton to put up a memorial to the 33 until 1992. Jeez. So like 50 years? Long ass time. Yeah. When the club finally unveiled such a plaque dedicated to those that lost their lives. When Burnden Park was finally demolished in 1999, the plaque moved with Bolton Wanderers. Bolton is set to recognize the 74th anniversary of the tragedy tomorrow, March 9th, which you are probably hearing this after March 9th. Yeah. But... Um, at the time, Burnden Park was the greatest sporting disaster in British history. Subsequent crowd crushes and deaths over the years, however, such as uh, at Rangers, Ibrox Park, and Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, caused the legacy of Burnden Park to be somewhat diminished. And for that reason, it is often referred to as football's forgotten tragedy. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that you told that story so that it's not forgotten and that those people are remembered because I had no idea. Right. Like that's, yeah, I, he, he literally, it was interesting to me because Cody texted me 
and said, it's like, oh, have you heard about this? I was like, I haven't, but like, I'm guessing the reason I haven't heard about this is because very similar disasters have occurred where more people have lost their lives. And so they, those have become more famous and also they're more recent. That's yeah. probably why. And I was like, I was like, so that's probably why he's like, really? Like, cause like, and Cody said to me, yeah, I was reading it and it sounded like something out of a zombie movie. And I was like, what? And I continued reading. And that's when I got to the part where they kept playing and we're playing a game as police were laying out dead bodies behind the goal. Yeah. And it's like, it's wild and it feels super like it feels bad. Like it feels very distasteful. And Stanley Matthews actually said there was another quote that he had um, where he was said he was afterwards when he realized what had occurred, he said he was disgusted that the game continued to be played. Yeah. Um, and you wonder, you wonder how much the players really tried. Yeah. Because they're kind of like in the middle of this developing disaster. Yeah. How, how can they just keep on playing as they're seeing completely limp bodies? Being... But they don't. But they don't know. They didn't. They they literally had no idea that people were people were dead or how many people were dead. There were some rumors, but they didn't know the extent of what had occurred. And nothing like that had ever happened. Yeah. To that extent in England before ever. Yeah. At a, at a soccer game, so like they just didn't have any frame of reference for it. In a way, it worked as well. I yeah. mean, in the sense that that was the only time when you had major, when you had casualties in the game. Like, they did prevent any, like, riots or any further pushing from happening. Yeah. Um, that's why we have safety codes now. That is why we have safety codes now. Because they are important. And that's why people sit in seats and stuff. And, yeah, and there's mass well, and, capacity laws. Yeah. And, 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 and just, like, that, that simple thing of, like, all right, you actually have to, like, have the turnstiles count yeah that's uh, that's basically like one of the things in the report is like you have to have the turnstiles count and if you reach capacity you have to stop letting people in and prevent them from getting in by any means yeah kind of thing yeah i mean because we've read plenty of stories on this before from old older times when people would frequently just like climb fences and walls and get into grounds yeah. that way when they stopped turning away yeah and nothing bad necessarily happened um, one of those happened, I think, I think we were talking about when we were talking about Dynamo, Dynamo Moscow and their England tour. The P-Soup tour. Yeah. One of those games, it wasn't the Arsenal game, but like, I think it might've been the game against Chelsea had like 80,000 people, which was way too many for their stadium. Yeah. Um, but like, it was just people kept climbing over roofs and stuff. Um, yeah, this is when that started to be like, we actually have to regulate this. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. people will die. Yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a heavy story. It's I a mean, little bit all, of a downer. I mean, all, all the stories like that are, I mean, whenever you you talk about loss of life, it's incredibly heavy. And so, I mean, it's good to remember those things. And yeah. I'm glad that laws were put in place to prevent something like this from happening in the future. But it, it is important to, yeah. to remember those that, that lost their lives. Um, Ultimately, the legacy of it came out to be a good thing. But yeah. it was certainly one of the more surreal like stories and tragedies that I've read about and I've done on the podcast. Yeah. Bolton waiting 50 years to, to memorialize them. A bad look. Definitely puts a, a sour taste in my mouth. A bad look, yeah. to be sure. Literally, they didn't do it until after the Hillsborough disaster. And it's just a plaque. I mean, like, yeah. 
It well, now now they do more. Now now they do way more. I was gonna say, but just to get a plaque, it took fifty years. Yes, I mean uh-huh. like that is the bare minimum. <laughs> like, yeah, you should be like compensating families and like honestly, like because yeah, they no, were responsible. No, 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 no. They they're the ones I, that should I, be held responsible for. I am a I am for a disaster like you. that. I mean, uh, it's yeah. just not right. Yeah, I think now. Um, the week of the Burned in Park anniversary, I read somewhere that Bolton usually puts its flags at half mast, and there's a bunch of like things and ceremonies and stuff. But yeah, it took a, it took way too long, um, yeah. and maybe that is like some sort of closure for a lot of those families. Uh-huh. Um, but also, you wonder like how many of those families really needed help and never got it. Yeah, yeah, it is really sad. Well, is that that's the end that's of the, the story? That's the end of the story. Um, right, well. A couple, a couple sources because I like citing my yeah, sources. Yeah, yeah. Um, BBC had uh, there was a couple different articles. BBC four four two, Footy Fair, the Bolton News, and the Line of Vienna Suite, which is the SB Nation Bolton site. Um, had that's where I got the list of names. Very cool. Um, of the people who died at Burden Park. Yeah. Yeah. May we never forget this tragedy. True that. I mean, it really is sad and um, puts a damper on what otherwise would have been a really awesome day for me. <laughs> not to. Sorry. I'm not mad. I'm not mad about this. It the, seems the like story. you're mad about it. But I, no, I'm not mad about the story. I'm glad that you told it. It's important to, to tell. We have a duty. Yeah. As. I mean, I wouldn't call us soccer historians by any means, but that is kind of what I we're think doing. <laughs> I, th- I think I think it's important for us to. I mean, like we like to do the bizarre and the weird and the funny. Yeah, like we love funny uh, stories, but it's also important to find some stories that are that are serious, the darker that, side of the game, mm-hmm. uh, and that and that are are less told stories. Yeah, and, and bring those to light. Yeah, uh, because we want to give it a, give it a full picture. Yeah, well. As always, um, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, yes. at Deadball Pod, at Deadball Pod. At Deadball Pod. Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. That's, that's all it is. Yeah, that's all it is. You can email us, deadballpod at gmail.com. Yeah, you can. With any concerns or questions, uh, or if you hate us, if you love us, you can give us a five-star review. Ooh. That would be super awesome. We would and love help a five-star us review. Move up the charts. Um, but we just want to thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. Yes, thank you for it all is- your support. So awesome that you guys want to listen to us talk and ramble on, and most of the time talk about really stupid stuff. But sometimes this, talk about serious stuff. This this story was serious and important. So I, I mean, hopefully you find value in that. I certainly did. Yeah. Even if that, I guess that kind of sounds a little corny, but no. Sometimes corny is good. It's, it's from the heart. It's yeah. Cor- it's corn from the heart. Just got corn growing in my heart. Corn growing in my heart. Just who I am. Corn all in my arteries. (laughs) America. Uh, Gosh. Uh, We should get out of here. Yeah, let's 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 end this thing. Until next week. My name's Adam Whitaker Snavely. And I'm Drew. And we will see you soon. Bye.